This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, after focusing on the shape of the Toronto election and the number of wards for the last few weeks, we can finally get down to the issues. This morning we saw the first debate and it was on the subject of the arts and culture, which is a sector that is very important here in Toronto. And five candidates squared off and we are going to take this opportunity to talk to two of the, I would say, lesser known people in the race. And they're both here in studio with me. We have Saren Gabra-Selassie, who is a lawyer and an activist. She has actually spent more than a year planning her run, and she boasts over a decade of community organizing experience. She's also a millennial and uh, wants to represent her generation. Also, we have Sarah Kleiman-Hega. She's an advocate for safe streets, better transit, and affordable housing. I'm going to give the numbers out again in case you have any questions uh, for either of these candidates. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Sarah Kleimanega, uh, what made you decide to run and when did you make that decision? Uh, I also decided last October, actually, um, and I decided to run just because I've lived in Toronto my whole life. I see things, I see the benefits, but I see a lot of the challenges facing Toronto, and I wasn't happy with how our government was responding to the issues around transit, around housing, around how safe our streets were. My 15-year-old was hit by a car when he was bicycling uh, through no fault of his own. Even the driver admitted it was driver error, but the point is our streets aren't designed safely. So issue after issue came up for me, and I decided... Rather than wait for the government to take action, I would run for mayor. Uh, you know, I, I'm very interested in the fact that that was the impetus, the safe streets. That's a very big issue for us here. Uh, very sorry um, to hear about your son. Oh, he was he, okay, but thank okay. you very much, yes. Uh, but also, uh, you know, we focus on uh, the Zoomer generation, the older generation, and very disproportionately when there are collisions, and I will not call them accidents, it's older people who get hurt and who are killed. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And our government's response has been to put up signs saying senior safety zones. And uh, if you, if a driver even sees those, usually they're speeding too fast, they certainly don't make them slow down, and it certainly does not make the area safer for seniors. So we have to move beyond signs to actual action. Uh, Saren Gebrselassie, uh, what made you decide to run? Well, I was very inspired by the example in New York of a historic victory, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is on track to be the member of Congress representing the Bronx. And she's a 28-year-old Latina organizer for, with zero electoral experience and is not a career politician and managed to do, uh, orchestrate a political upset beating a 10-term incumbent. So that is a huge signal in terms of what's possible in the city of Toronto and mobilizing the working class populations of the city to send a message that working class issues need to be front and center in this mayoral and, race. And what are working class issues? 
I said earlier, I would like to see a state of emergency declared vis-a-vis -vis affordable housing. In the city of Toronto, everyone knows getting even a box of an apartment downtown Toronto is, we're looking at sometimes $1,500, $1,600. And housing is completely out of control in the city. We heard earlier today, Jennifer Kiesmat and John Tory completely failed on delivering. They promised 10,000 affordable housing units, didn't even meet half of that target, and are here today to telling the people of the city that they're going to build 100,000 units. So I would encourage working class people in the city to really pay attention and, uh, and be critical of, of our... Sarah, know. affordable housing is an issue for you as well. And I have to say when I see that, and it's interesting that you referenced uh, the, the candidate in New York. I lived in New York as a young woman. Housing was extremely unaffordable because it's, you know, one of the greatest cities in the world, as Toronto is now, right. I think. And and people kind of accepted that because, you know, if, you, if you're in New York or London, you sort of expect that. Well, I think there's, there's two aspects to that. Number one is, I, I agree, it, it's not realistic. I don't expect, expect my three children to have a fully detached house with a nice large backyard. We have too many people in this city to provide that. But what we can do is provide genuinely affordable apartments, rental housing, great community parks so you don't need your own backyard, great community centers so you don't need, you know, several rooms in your house. So we need to make our, it is possible to have more housing and New York has taken some measures uh, to make it more affordable for people and I think Toronto needs to be much more aggressive on that because we have a lot of space around us and people are leaving. That's not good, uh, for uh, commute times. It's not good for our uh, farmland and our nature outside the city. We want people to live here. They contribute so much. So we do have a lot of space in Toronto still available to us if we develop it properly. Mm -hmm. And Saren, I'm interested in this business about you being a millennial. You say your generation does business differently. How is that playing into your campaign? I have engaged a pretty large segment of uh, youth from a variety of different communities and you know times are changing and Jennifer Kiesmat and John Tory in my view represent too old a lot of old school politics they're both you know I mean Kiesmat earns over some I think a quarter million dollars a year in salary has like it's a city bureaucrat from my perspective John Tory and you know I see a lot of parallels between those two perspectives and I really want to show the people of the city of Toronto that working class people have options and young people too I, I think again the American example is a great one because young professionals and millennials are absolutely changing the way business is done in the city uh-huh uh think about uh millennials they don't really vote <laughs> not in very big numbers it's it's uh, we are zoomers older people and we vote yeah I, I think that in general there's a lot of people who don't vote because they don't feel government responds to their needs and so i think what saran's talking about engaging with millennials is really important of course there's we shouldn't ignore any group but i think government tends to focus only on voters and they ignore all the rest of the people and in the municipal government there might only be 40% of people voting. Does that mean we if you're lucky? The, do, yeah. Do we, does we ignore the other 60%? So it really is important not to neglect the people who are voting, but to attract people who aren't by responding to their needs. Uh, I want to ask some nuts and bolts questions. So in order to run, I'm assuming you have to put your career on hold and you have to find some money. How are you doing that? Yeah, so I... 
am a lawyer and I took a full sabbatical from my firm to be on the campaign full time. No doubt John Tory has a significant financial advantage. I mean, he'd raise over a million dollars in a very short amount of time. For people listening, you can only donate approximately $2,500 per person. So a million dollars is, is not chump change. And representing... No kidding. Yeah. Um, and representing working class people, it's a challenge, but we've seen it done before. And I keep on turning to the American examples. Bernie Sanders relied on $20, $25, $5 donations from working people across the country. And I Are you crowdfunding? or something like that? Yeah, so we have, uh, we've done traditional fundraisers and we've seen even a lot of working class people who are working working poor or low income donate to my, uh, my campaign because they see change. They see an opportunity to usher in a new era. So that should tell you if you're a working class person who can perhaps barely afford transit but are willing to donate to a campaign, people will do it if they actually see themselves reflected. And and I've taken a bit of a different tack. I mean, I don't believe that you need a lot of money to run. I think you need a lot of time and you need a lot of energy. And I'm fortunate I've been supported by my partner. I've been I've raised my three kids and that's been my full time occupation occupation. I didn't have to leave a job. So you do need to have that flexibility to devote the time. But I really challenge this notion that you need a lot of money. Money buys access to people. It buys advertising, it buys lawn signs, that sort of thing. But if you are willing to go out and meet people, you can get that traction. Of course, the problem is the media likes you to have money to make you worth paying attention to. But as I think both Saran and I have shown, if you work hard, you can get noticed. And uh, that's what we need to focus on. Not this idea that it's, I mean, money absolutely is a barrier and it shouldn't be. But if you're willing to, if the media is willing to pay attention to people who are outside of that, uh, we can do it. So I, when I realized how much time fundraising was going to cover cost my campaign, I wanted to really focus on the message. So I decided I'm not going to spend. I'm not going to spend my time fundraising. I'm just going to spend so my time you, getting out there. Self-funding? No, I mean, like, like I said, I'm just not spending the money on traditional things that uh, campaign. I don't have a campaign office. My office is is the streets. I've funded my campaign to a very small amount, uh, just to lawn cover. signs. I, I, I said with the senior safety zones, signs don't work. Uh, lawn signs, of course, I mean, they're a conventional part of a campaign. I've looked at some studies. They're not a huge make-or-break deal. They're a huge... Uh, also, really, from an environmental perspective, there's some issues around lawn signs. So, again, it's an area where I thought... I could fundraise my whole campaign to try and pay for a few long signs, or I could get out and talk to as many people as possible. That's what I chose. Do you, you, do you really think you can win, Saren? I would just like, I love the Cortez quote, big money will not defeat big money. Big organizing can defeat big money. And I am in infused about mobilizing thousands of people in the city of Toronto and I've been able to engage with a lot of communities that traditionally don't vote and we usually have abysmal voter uh, voter rates so well absolutely. that's one of the things that that uh, candidates and politicians need an organization for is to get their vote out I mean presumably you know where your supporters are but you have to get them to the polls that's exactly the case and uh, and so it's uh, 
to do that, we got to speak directly to, to, to first-time voters. The experts have told me that my community doesn't vote, that youth don't vote, and that I should discount them. And I, those are exactly the segments of the population I am targeting, first-time voters. And there will be a lot of first-time voters this election, thanks to my mayoral campaign. I, I just wanted to add, I think it's a really interesting question. Do, do we believe, you know, do either of us believe we can win? Yes, I believe I can win. And when I, someone asks me that, I just want to ask them, do you believe I can win? And it's not important. Belief, no, it's all about belief, right? Well, then, <laughs> Frankly. Okay, yeah. that, fair, totally fair enough. And if that's important to you, how you cast your vote, then you will, are going to choose your vote. But some people, they want to vote exactly for what they believe in. And they're not as so concerned about whether that person is going to win or not, because voting is about more than just winning. Otherwise, why have a race at all? John Tory was looking pretty popular. Why bother to run against him? Well, well it's also, uh, if you're looking longer term there are a lot of I've noticed um, I don't know so much for city because right. incumbency is really kind of entrenched but yes. that uh, say at the provincial level a lot of people have to run once and lose and then the next time I mean uh, you know you can run with an eye to the future if that's uh, yeah it's not about arrogance or you know mm. living in a dreamland it's just about you know Start, set your goal. People enter the Olympics who are probably quite unlikely to win first, but they do it, right? They do it because it's worth doing. I believe it's worth doing. Well, and, and yeah. in, in sports, they say that you have to believe. <laughs> right. Uh, so um, what would you say is your main platform? Like, what will you do first thing if you win? First step is to declare a state of emergency vis-a-vis -vis the affordable housing crisis. We uh, heard earlier this year Jennifer Kiesmat declare a state of emergency around pedestrian safety in the city of Toronto, and as you know, rightfully so. And I, I'm surprised there's been a little bit of, of a silence around identifying housing as a complete crisis in Toronto. So that is uh, my first step. I'm also looking at electoral reform issues. I'd like to see two-term limits for city councillors so we don't have city councillors sitting for 40 years in office. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Yes. In uh, in Ward 5, Francis Nanzietta has been in city council for close to 40 years. That's uh, that's not good for Toronto. That's not good for our ward. It's not good for democracy. And two-term limits is reasonable. Yes. And I, th I, I think that, you know, I think that's what the people of the city of Toronto need. And we don't want to see politicians hoarding power for you know, generations and then passing it down to their children for another generation. What um, What's your take on transit, Sarah? Um, on transit, I feel like we've taken it way too far as far as the politicization of transit. And I feel like politicians assume that they know how to do transportation. You know, you wouldn't go into a hospital and say, oh, doctor, you are not doing that heart surgery right. I'm sure I know a better way to do it. No one would do that. But there is expertise involved in transit planning, in designing our streets. So our politicians need to just decide. Jennifer Kiesmet has yeah. that expertise. And I'm, and I'm so pleased that she has been so vocal on that issue. It's, it's critically important. So um, transit, but what I do find is that both the candidates are talking a lot about the long-term plans, which is important. We haven't done enough long term planning, but there are decisions we can make today to improve the TTC. We've got the King Street pilot. It's been very successful. Not uncontroversial, but if you look at the data, very successful. That is an approach that's low Some cost. Some people question 
that data? Because uh, uh, I've spoken to people who say, yes, the ridership has gone up, but they've just moved from Queen Street to King Street. It's not new transit riders necessarily. Well, I, I think we would the, the, we would need to get the city person in here to, to debate the numbers. I mean, they've, they've produced the data. I believe them as a transit user. I, I certainly find King Street much easier. I still take Queen Street or Carlton Street. But I think the point is that it's it has improved things on King's, King Street and it has created more reliable service. And I think we could do that throughout the city. I really do. It costs so much less than uh, other types of investments. Transit? Jennifer Keysmat also hinted at the possibility of a fare-free model. Uh, she put a message out on Twitter and uh, I would, I think the majority of people of Toronto would also agree that TTC fare is rather punitive. So I'm calling for a freeze on transit fares, um, no, no more fare hikes, and over 100 cities around the world have piloted a fare-free model. And at this fare juncture... Fare-free or fare-freeze? Fare, a fare-freeze on transit fare. Freeze. So freeze. you're not, you're not going to come in and make fare-free? Uh, no, I'm not going to uh, make fare-free overnight, but I want the city to start imagining a future where transit could be free. There was a time when people thought healthcare couldn't be free or that... Where's this money coming from? I mean, the city is very limited in uh, revenue tools. Yes. So we actually have an operating budget of close to $11 billion. And one possible revenue source that I've been speaking about earlier is repurposing the police budget, which right now occupies one-tenth of our operating budget and sits at just All of it? Over, All the police budget? No, of course not. Uh, but a portion of the police budget to have a more fair allocation of city resources. So I, that's... You know, that's reasonable because I've been saying that we want to tackle poverty and as a solution to tackling crime. And that if we didn't have so much poverty in the city of Toronto, I don't believe that we would see the level of criminal activity that we have been seeing. A lot of people are very concerned uh, that we're on track to have another year of the gun here. And uh, a lot of people think that we are soft on crime, not too hard. Sarah, what's what's your take on that? Well, I mean, the evidence just seems to show that reacting to crimes after the fact is never as effective as pre preventing crimes before. And prevention involves... Okay, no one, yeah. no one argues that, but we have crime now, so right. uh, while we're preventing future crime, we have to deal with what we've got now. Well, I mean, we, we have a justice system, we are dealing with it. Uh, I don't agree, and I don't think that evidence supports that we're too soft on crime. I understand people's frustration, and feeling you know why why do people seem to get away with things they need to, it's a case by case basis it's different in every case so i think we always just need to come back to making our communities safer um you know improving relationships with police i know one of the things that people complain about is that people won't uh tell who is involved in a crime for instance and part of that is due to poisonous relationships with the police so if we can improve that we're going to create a, a closer-knit community that will support each other um and then just coming back to prevention. It's just so much cheaper than, than uh, reacting. And the reacting is not helping the crime. That's the problem. It's, you know, we have the crime, yes, but uh, throwing in expensive and unproven surveillance technologies, for instance, this isn't, uh, it's spending a lot of money. It's looking like we're doing something, but it's not reducing crime. Well, uh, people have different, a lot of people are very worried about this. Uh, there are some people who say that We've seen more gun crime because of, say, the end of carding, which was very controversial. Uh, and 
people want more police. What do you and that's a that's a sizable number of people. Mm-hmm. What what would you say to those? I mean, how would you represent that view? Yeah, in 2005, I met with then Prime Minister Paul Martin with a coalition of African Canadian organizations to combat gun violence from a community-based and youth-led perspective. So crime in the city it just comes in cyclical waves because we, you know, we see it now. There's an, you know, there's going to be increased attention to it. At some point, it's going to subside. There will be an increase in funding to youth programs, and then the cycle will repeat again in three to five years. What we need to do is actually have a vision towards eliminating poverty in the city of Toronto. Most people will agree that it's not middle class or affluent youth that are find themselves in conflict with the justice system. Yeah, but how do you deal with the crime? You just say, wait, wait till this spate, which is caused for whatever reason, if there's a gang war, like just wait, wait it out. Is that? No, I'm saying I, I don't think we should wait. I think we should be proactive in immediately addressing youth jobs. So rather than hiring 200 more police officers, I've called for the creation of 1,000 more youth jobs in neighborhood improvement areas. There's, we need a preventative approach. By the time the police have been involved, it's too late. Uh, what about you? Do we need uh, we do we need those? Uh, 200 more police officers? Well, I think we look at the communities where more crime is occurring, and they are not asking for more police officers. They're asking for more youth programs. So if the communities that are the most directly affected by crime are not asking for more, then why would we be wanting to impose that on them? Um, the, the thing is, carding doesn't it reduce crime. So it's it's something that people uh, sometimes want to seize on because they think they want a solution. And it, that's understandable. It, nobody it feels Feeling safe is feeling unsafe is not a nice feeling. So we look for solutions, but you know it's not about letting the gangs just go on and just focusing on a basketball league or whatever. We're, the police are there. The justice system is there. We are working on on crime all the time. Um, it's about what more can we do? And I think the more is definitely in the area of of working with the communities of prevention and working with the police. I mean, the police will have ideas beyond beyond just more police. They'll have other ideas about creative solutions. I'd like to talk to them about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just saw a whole uh, pitched battle over the number of wards in the city. And, uh, you know, there's a limit to the power I mean, that city council has. The city is a creature of the province. Uh, the province, I would say, has very, very different ideas on how things should be and how they should run than either of you. So how would you deal with the province, with Doug Ford? Well, we, he just slashed City Hall in half. So now we have 25 councillors, which is a small group of people to represent the entire city of Toronto. And this was a time when we really, really needed leadership from our sitting mayor, John Tory, to come forward and say, the people of Toronto have spoken. There are thousands of people who have lined our streets who are not in favour of a 25-ward system. But we didn't see that. We didn't see that bold leadership. We saw, really, him concede to Doug Ford's uh, Ford's, um, announcement. He he tried to fight it, but there's, you know, the the province has the legal authority to do what it did. There, There are legal limits. Doug Ford is not a king. He is our premier. And... But the city, the city is still, and I would argue that cities need more power in in this day and age. But as of now, they don't have it. Well, Doug Ford 
seems to be intent on ruling City Hall from Queen's Park. Invoking the notwithstanding clause was a shock to so many. It he managed a, not to do it, by the way. He managed not to, but he was prepared to, even though that has never happened in the history of, of, of the province of Ontario. And so it's the writing is on the wall. It's a signal of more to come, and we really need, in these times, to, to have leadership that's willing to stand up for the people of the city. Yeah, I just jump in and say uh, we have to do what we can do. And you're absolutely right, Libby. The province is holding all the cards at this point. Um, so we have to stand up and, and fund what we can and go in the direction that we can. And if the province comes down on us, we need to find creative ways uh, of getting around that. Now, I think just fighting and yelling uh, is not working. So we need to find ways of working with either Doug Ford or the, the sentiment behind what he's asking for, because I think people can agree with some of the problems that he's raised. It's his methods that's the problem. So I, I just want to, I think that the mayor needs to stand up for Toronto, but also to work constructively wherever possible and find areas of common agreement. Okay, we're just about out of time, so I'm going to give you 25 seconds each. Saren, what would you like to leave us with? I would like the working class people in the city of Toronto to recognize this is an important opportunity. It's your election. Vote for a candidate who is actually going to fight for working class issues and fight to eliminate poverty in the city. And finally, tackle affordable housing to actually see us meet the targets that have been set. And uh, for me, it's just about uh, encouraging all of you to get out and vote. We have very low voter turnout in this city. And I heard a saying that I love, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that's what's happening when people aren't voting. So get out and vote. Uh, research the candidates to find out their stances on the issues that are important to you. I presented mine, uh, my approach to you. I, I'd encourage you to go and research who you'd like to support. And vote for the vision that you believe in the most. It's October 22nd. Advanced polls are starting October 10th. And uh, yeah, have a... Have a good election season along with the rest of us. Okay. Thank you so much and nice to meet you, Sarah Kleiman Haga. Thank you. And Saren Geber Selassie. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.